0: This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 12. Our men's retreat's happening this weekend, so we can pray for them this morning as they're ending up. Had the joy of being there Friday night and Saturday morning. And I got to tell you, I slept a lot better last night (laughs) in my own bed. Men's retreats are not great for sleeping, but great for fellowship. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love, for your faithfulness. We thank you for our city, for our community. Lord, we just pray that individually and as a church together, we could make impact upon this city for your glory, for your name. And as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. We invite you here, Holy Spirit, into our lives afresh to give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We do pray over the men's retreat that you would bless it as they have their final session this morning. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at a glorious section of scripture this morning. It's the triumphal entry of Christ, the last week of Christ. So much of his life, he was saying, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for my glory to be revealed. But now he comes into Jerusalem publicly. There's this public acknowledgement of who Jesus is and he reveals his glory to us. So let's look in verse 12 this morning. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is a time marker for us. It's saying the next day. So we have to go back and look, okay, what was the day prior? If you look at verse one, of the same chapter, chapter 12, it says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Then verse 12 says the next day. So six days before Passover, now we're five days before Passover, this would be Sunday. This is why this is called Palm Sunday. What's the feast that's about ready to be celebrated was the Passover lamb. The families would be preparing the Passover lamb that would be killed on Passover to remember when God's judgment passed over them when they were in bondage in Egypt. Here comes Jesus, the fulfillment of the Passover feast. Here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is going to be slain for sins. They hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and a great multitude responds in verse 13: Took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This account is in all four Gospels. If you're looking for some fun today, it might take you 15 minutes or a half hour, is go home and go ahead and read all three accounts of the triumphal injury, the other three accounts, and see the pieces that are put together. Why are they getting palm branches? Because palm branches were symbolic of victory or, or triumph. So they would wave these palm branches before Christ Also, they would put their clothes, blankets, out in front of Christ as he's riding in upon this donkey and proclaiming him to be the Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches are mentioned in the Old Testament. They were part of Israel's history. First, when they were in the wilderness, there were three days without water, hot, and they come to this spring, and it was bitter called Mara, God told Moses to take a tree and put the tree into the water, and it was made fresh, made sweet. And then right after that, God led them to a place where there was a fresh spring and 70 palm trees. How nice would that be to be under those, those palm trees? Then we go a little bit further in the scripture. And Leviticus tells us when they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they would use Palm branches to make their tents to make their booths that they would spend the weekend When the temple was built god Instructed them to take palm branches and to use it as part of the decoration not a literal palm branch But upon the doors and the walls they carved palm branches that were there in psalms 92 It says the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree There's a lot of palm trees in israel, but not in jerusalem In Jericho. And Jericho is a bit of a distance from Jerusalem and there's a big elevation decrease. Jericho is lower than Jerusalem. So they had prepared these palm branches from Jericho. Jericho is even called the city of palms. To this day in Jericho there's a lot of of palm trees. So the people had gone through great effort to bring these palm branches in anticipation that Jesus might come at the feast of of Passover. Passover, and then they began to wave the palm branches and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know from Luke's account that the religious leader tried to silence the worship of Christ, and Jesus said if they weren't worshiping, the rocks would cry out. This is such an important moment for Christ to be recognized as the Messiah, God in human flesh. Jesus is saying, man, if people don't worship me, then creation will worship me. Even creation is designed to worship God. It would have been kind of interesting to hear the rocks cry out, wouldn't it, right? What would that look like if if Pike's Peak decided to bust out in praise to God? Do you know you are fulfilling part of your purpose? worship God this morning as you sang to the Lord and surrendered afresh to the Lord. That's why you're created. Jesus is worthy to be praised, worthy to be worshiped, and we're fulfilling God's role for us as we worship the Lord. I want you to see how special this moment is, because this fulfills a prophecy from Psalms 18 In the next few moments, we're going to look at some Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled right here. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me back to Psalms 118, and let's look at verse 22. Psalms 118, verse 22. This is the psalm that they're quoting as Jesus is coming in. They're singing it, and they're singing Psalms 118. And as we read Psalms 118, it's very clearly prophetic of Jesus Christ. So this is verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In Luke, Jesus uses this right after the triumphal entry. He also quotes from Psalms 118 to speak of himself. He is that chief cornerstone that was rejected. He was rejected and now has become the pillar of our salvation. He would go on to say that if you fall upon me, you'll be broken. But if I fall upon you, you're going to be crushed. If we fall upon Jesus in humility, we're saved. But if we resist him in pride, we'll be crushed under him. This is speaking of Jesus, the cornerstone of our salvation. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Jesus being rejected was the Lord's doing. This was God's plan. This is what God had purposed. This is what was in the hearts and mind of God, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Isn't the gift of Jesus Christ upon the cross marvelous in our eyes? Amen. And in verse 24, "This is the day the Lord has made; we will rejoice and be glad in it." Now, how many times have you heard that verse or used that verse? in regards to a 24-hour period of time. This is the day that the Lord has made. God has made this day, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And that's true, God has made this day, we wanna rejoice and be glad in it. But in context of Psalms 118, what day is being talked about? The day of salvation. The day that Jesus Christ died for our sins. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that changed every other day. Christ's crucifixion, he's coming into Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified in just a a few days, this is the day that God has made, I am going to rejoice in it, and be glad in it, amazing, and powerful, and then this is what was sung, save now I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. That's what we see in verse 25. This was the heart of the people. We have to try to put ourselves inside of the Roman context as we read, especially uh, these verses, because it causes the humility of Christ to stand out that he was upon a donkey, but also what the people are really wanting. They're really wanting to be out of the Roman oppression We could understand that. What if we were underneath the thumb of some other country and we would desperately long for our freedom? What they're really saying is, Jesus, save us from the Romans. And they started to understand the power of Jesus. This guy can feed over 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. Just think what he could do to the Romans. He could punch the Romans right in the face, right? He could bring this victory. Put also into this that they're God's chosen people. This is the land that God has given to them. They know the Old Testament, their history of God bringing about these supernatural victories. And they're saying, Lord, save now. But what happens as Christ is arrested, that he's put on trial, is they start to realize he's not gonna deliver us from the Romans. And they turn from saying, save now, to crucify him, crucify him. And that's why Jesus expressed to them, I'm the stone that has been rejected. You're rejecting me. Let's look at Christ's humility in verse 14. After his entry, now we look at his humility. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And this is a quote from Zechariah nine nine. You may want to write it down. The other gospels tell us that Jesus instructed his disciples to go and they would find this donkey, this young donkey that no one had ever ridden upon before, and to just go ahead and take it. And when they were asked, what do you do in taking my donkey? The response was, the Lord has need of it. So that's exactly what they did. Could you imagine if you went out to the the parking lot this morning, and someone was taking your car. What are you doing? Why are you taking my car? Well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, now don't try that. <laughs> That's the wrong use of of scripture, right there. So here Christ is on this donkey, coming into Jerusalem. Zechariah nine nine. If you read the full verse, says that he's lowly, riding on a donkey. Again, Roman context, Roman general conquering, coming back to Rome on a white stallion saying, I'm victorious with all this pomp, being pompous. And here's Jesus riding lowly upon a donkey in his humility. So in Christ, we have all power. He's God. He spoke. He created all things into existence. And his humility, he was born in Bethlehem took on human flesh, God in human flesh, lived primarily in obscurity as a carpenter, chose to be a servant, chose to wash feet and meet needs and love people and care for people. In his humility comes upon a donkey to go to the cross to be crucified for our sins. Jesus described himself autobiographically. This is what he tells us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily le- laden, because I'm meek. I'm meek. Jesus is approachable. We think of meek as being weak, but it's ultimate power underneath control. Do you picture Jesus as being both powerful and approachable? What if Jesus would have had more of a Roman general type of triumphal entry into Jerusalem that's not very approachable isn't it great respect for our military and all the sacrifice that you make and you think if you're sitting down with a five-star general in their uniform a lot of respect and honor there but it'd be difficult to approach them right because I'd be intimidated you'd probably be intimidated I don't have a military background be hard for me to be like hey you want to come over for tacos you know right (laughs) In Jesus, he, he's approachable in his, his humility, coming upon a donkey into Jerusalem. In verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. As they're going through it, they don't understand it. They don't get the significance of the triumphal entry. But after Christ is glorified, his death, his re- resurrection, his ascension, then it clicks. I go, "Oh yeah, this was written about Jesus in Psalms 118. This was written about Jesus in Zechariah 9:9. This was written about Christ in Daniel 9. He's fulfilling all of these things." I find this to be really encouraging. Cuz oftentimes as we go th- through our lives and different events with the Lord, it doesn't make sense. We don't understand it. But then over time, we look back and we go, oh yeah, this is what this means. This is what God was doing in my life. This is what he was teaching me. And then ultimately, when we see the glory of Christ in heaven, everything's going to make sense, isn't it? When Christ was glorified, this made sense. When we see Christ in all of his glory, it's going to make sense. Verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. This is cool. There was those that were mourning with Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus at the tomb when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they bore witness of Christ. They're saying, yes, this guy rose Lazarus from the dead. He's the Messiah. In verse 18, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. They heard that God had raised Lazarus from the dead, so they went and met Jesus for for themselves. Maybe for some of you, that's the journey you're on. You've been hearing about what God's been doing in your spouse's life. Maybe in your child's life or a good friend's life, and you're like, wow, I, I really see something different there. I really see something of substance there. I want to find out who Jesus is for myself. I'm going to read the scriptures for myself. I'm going to read the gospel of John for myself. Verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're wanting to silence Christ. They've been persecuting Christ and oppressing Christ. they're saying, you're not accomplishing anything. It's not having any impact the whole world's going to go after Jesus they're really concerned about the kind of influence that Christ is having and we see that in the book of Acts and we see it throughout church history is when there's great opposition to Christ also that's when Christ really moves into society we look at the country of China in more recent history China kicked out all of the missionaries and people were concerned that that was going to be the end of the Christian influence in China That's the moment that God, in his grace, caused the church of China to come to life and they experienced a a revival. And in midst of the oppression that takes place in China, with the lack of religious freedom, the gospel is thriving. How is that? Because God's bigger than the opposition. He's able to get his message out even when those try to silence him. In verse 20, now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Greeks are at the feast. This is really important. Please listen. It is God's heart has always been for the nations. God wants the nations to know him. Through the nation of Israel, God was wanting to reach the nations, where the nations would come to Jerusalem, celebrate these feasts, see who God is, Christ being born of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, he is for the nations. He died for the nations. And Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the nations were gathered there. They were coming to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They heard the gospel in their own language. God's heart is for the world. In the heart of a believer, there's no room for prejudice. There's no room for prejudice in the heart of a believer. Why? Because God has created us in his image. Jesus has died for for the world. To be a follower of Christ means that we have a heart for the nations. Amen? We have the love of Christ for the world and desire to see all come to know Christ as their Savior. Here's the question that these Greeks have. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, We wish to see Jesus. Probably the greatest request in all of human history. We want to see Jesus. At the birth of Christ, we have Gentiles coming from the east to what? Worship Jesus. Now, once again, we have Gentiles, non-Jewish people, coming desiring to worship Jesus, desiring to see Jesus for who he was. They had heard about Christ and they want to see him. They want to experience it for themselves. They find one of Christ's disciples, Philip, and say, hey, could you arrange a meeting for us? We want to see Jesus. We want to have a conversation with Jesus. Philip is not one of the disciples that lives in the limelight. We haven't seen him since John chapter 6, when Jesus said, hey guys, could you feed the 5,000? Why don't you go see what kind of resources you have? And here comes Philip back with five loaves and two fish. He took the resources that he did have and put them into the hands of Christ. And here we see him bringing these Greeks to Jesus. Is this your request this morning that you want to see Jesus? What do you want to see? What do you want to experience? What do you want to do this week? What's on the priority list? is one of those to see Jesus, to experience him? God gives us the invitation and he says, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Things change in our lives when we see Jesus. When we experience him, his glory, understand who he is. Paul put it this way, that we've been given a ministry to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold the glory of God, that we're changed from glory to greater glory. The Christian life is not us trying to conjure up change. It's us beholding Jesus. And as we worship Christ and we see who he is and we walk with him, then he changes our lives and we get to reflect his glory. You maybe have experienced this, where there's a period of your life where you just geek out on Jesus. You can't get enough of Christ. You're reading the Gospels. You're praying. You're worshiping. You're learning more about who who Jesus is. It's fresh. And you realize, you know what? I'm not the same person that I was six months ago. I'm not the same person that I was six years ago. I'm not perfect, but man, it sure made a difference when I'm focused on Christ and I want to see Jesus for who he is where I'm beholding him. But we've also... Had seasons in our lives where we're very focused in upon our behavior. We're very focused in on saying, you know what, I need to overcome this. I've been in bondage to this. I am going to fix this in my life. How does that go? After six months of doing that, a lot of times we experience more defeat than when we started. And that's super frustrating, isn't it? Like, man, here I've been trying so hard in this area of my life. And I'm actually losing my temper more than ever, right? I find myself more in a place of bitterness than ever. The focus is Jesus. The focus is Jesus. To see him, to say, Jesus, I want to see you. Man, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there's more to see and experience about Jesus. If you've been walking with the Lord for a few weeks, there's, been, there's more to see and know about Jesus, If you're just starting to explore who he is and you don't know if you have a relationship with him, there's more to see about Jesus. For all of eternity, there's going to be more to experience of who Jesus is. Let's make this our cry. Let's make this our request. How may God respond if we say, we want to see Jesus. We want to experience Jesus. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. This is just humorous. For some reason, Philip's like, uh, I kind of need some backup on this one. If I just uh, go to Jesus, I, I'm going to tell Andrew, and then Andrew and I will come together. If, you have parent, if you're a parent of multiple kids, you've experienced this, right? One of your children says, we may have a better possibility of getting ice cream tonight if I can get my sister in on this, Right? And maybe if all four of us ask together, dad will not be able to resist all of us together, right? So Philip gets Andrew and asks Jesus, and then Jesus responds in this way. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Remember their request is we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, this is when my glory is going to be revealed, If you really want to see the height, the depth, the width, the substance of who I am, my glory, this is where it is revealed. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, his death. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. When Mary, his mom, wanted him to do the miracle At the wedding where they ran out of wine, what did Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. And he graciously still did the miracle, but what he's saying is it's not time for my glory to be revealed. And now at this point in the gospels, he's saying the hour has come. This is the moment. The hour has come where the son of man is gonna be glorified. And God chooses to demonstrate his glory through the sacrifice of his son upon the cross. God demonstrated his love for us. He put it on open display to where we couldn't miss it. He demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's the unfolding message of the Bible? As you look Genesis to Revelation, what is it all about? It's all about this moment where Christ would die for our sins. It's not that God was surprised that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin, and he tells us that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the earth. It was already decided that Christ would come and die for our sins, and the Old Testament is pointing us and preparing us for a Savior from the very beginning. A lot of people would say, well, if I just had a perfect environment, I wouldn't need a Savior, I wouldn't need Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I'm really a product of my environment. God in his wisdom knew that we would say that. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment. They had it pretty good. There was no old boyfriends or old girlfriends. And there was no in-laws, right? It's just the two of them with no sin, no shame, complete fellowship with the Lord. And yet in that environment, they choose sin. Sin was a choice that they made in a perfect environment. We need a savior. Well, how about if God just gave us some requirements? What if he just gave us some laws and I could fulfill those laws and I wouldn't need a savior? God knew that we would think that way and he gives a period of the law and we find from the law that we fall short. It's our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ and shows us that we need a savior. Well, some would say, well, I'll just do what's right in my own eyes. If I do what's right in my own eyes, I don't think I would need a savior. I think I would do pretty well. Well, God dedicates a whole book of the Bible to that, the book of Judges. The key phrase over and over, they did what was right in their own eyes. And if you read that book, you see it's an absolute mess. Horrific wickedness. We need a savior. It really mirrors what our culture is doing. Well, then what follows after Doing right within our own eyes. Well, we need a king. We need strong human leadership. Maybe government can fix this. What do you guys think? Think government's gonna fix this? And I encourage you to be involved in the governmental process and vote and all those things. But guess what? Government can't be our savior. Government can't save us from our sins. We need more than human leadership. We need a savior. God dedicates a big period of the Old Testament Watching these kings trying to lead and the failure that it resulted, it all comes to this point where Christ comes to be crucified for our sins and this is the message of God. This is the love of God. This is where we behold the glory of God. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus likens his death to a grain of wheat. And as the grain of wheat is placed into the ground, the seed, this small seed, and, and it dies, then it produces life. And as Jesus is crucified and buried, he produces life. Death leads to life. His death leads to life. Agrarian culture. People were farmers. They were very close to this process. They understood what this would take place with this wheat seed. It's an amazing experience to plant a seed in the ground and watch God do his work. My wife's been into gardening for some time in the last few years. I've gotten into it a little bit more. And it's so rewarding to take this stupid small seed. I mean, it's so small. And you put it into the ground and you water it. Get some good soil, you water it, try to keep the weeds out. God does his thing, and all of a sudden, you've got stuff on your plate that you can eat. And sometimes you've got a lot of it. You're like, man, I don't ever want to eat this much kale. What in the world happened, you know? The zucchini's gone bonkers. It's time to give some away. Now, if we could grow Cheerios, Honey not Cheerios, that might be different. But. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be so much life that comes from my death that comes through my crucifixion upon the cross. And now we get to instruction. Jesus turns it and instructs these Greeks as they're asking this question, I want to see Jesus. And he says, he who loves his life will lose it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Church, brother and sister in Christ, Jesus intended for this to be shocking. He intended tended this to jolt us, to jolt the hearer that heard it for the first time. It says, if you love this life, you're going to to lose it. But if you hate your life, you're gonna keep it for eternal life. What Jesus is not saying is that you don't respect your life, that you live in a place where you're not aware that you're created in God's image, that you're, you're loved by God. But what Jesus is being a front to is our selfishness. And he's saying, look, if you go through your life with a selfish mentality, with loving your life, trying to make your life as comfortable as you possibly can, you're going to lose it. That's going to lead to the destruction of your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, if you come and die... If you come and follow me, if you choose to, to serve me, that's going to lead to life. So as Jesus died upon the cross, he's inviting us into death. And when we're willing to surrender, take up our cross and follow him, then that leads to life. And in fact, it leads to the abundant life, not the easy life, not the comfortable life. But God knows, as a loving Father, that a selfish life is the worst thing for us. And a life following Jesus Christ, man, it's filled with joy. Not happiness. Happiness is based on feelings. Joy is the reality of who God is. And so Jesus describes this in verse 26. And this is the last verse that we look at this morning. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So we may claim to serve Christ or think that we serve Christ, but if we serve Christ, then we're going to follow him and be where he is. And Jesus was willing to serve. Jesus was willing to lay down his life as a ransom for many upon the cross. And so as the death of Christ, as the glory of Christ, as the love of Christ impacts us then it moves us to say Jesus I want you to have all of me and I want to follow you and I'm ready for you to be in control of my days including this day and how would you want me to serve which means death to our plans death to our agenda death to our selfishness and selfishness dies hard doesn't it It'd be sure wonderful to deal with selfishness once and for all in this life. And then like, okay, that's dead and buried. My selfishness has to be crucified every day. My selfishness wakes up very healthy each and every day. And it's choosing to say, Jesus died for me in his love for me. So now I'm choosing today to take up my cross and follow Jesus and allow him to, to have his proper place in my life. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. And then as we do that, what does it say? It's this promise that then the Father's gonna honor those who serve Jesus. God is so gracious in his love for us to die for our sins and rise again. In that great love, he's calling us out of sin and selfishness. He's calling us to that place where we hear his voice in his word and we follow him. I guarantee that it will change the way that we read the Bible if we read it with this being our marching orders of saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. You're going to follow something or someone. It's the way we're designed. And are we following Jesus? Have we been impacted by that place of experiencing the reality of who he is of saying, Jesus, I am choosing to follow you. You're never gonna regret following Jesus. When we see Jesus calling disciples, he called them by name. It was personal invitation. He'd say, boom, come follow me. Boom, come follow me boom, come follow me. And Jesus is still in the business of calling us to follow him. How cool is that? Jesus is saying, I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me. But if we try to do the Christian life in the reverse order, it's not gonna work. If we're going to Jesus saying, hey, why don't you follow me? I don't think so, right? That's not the way this works true Christian life is found in surrender to him. He invites us to come and die so that we might live. So let's stand together and let's pray. What an amazing section of scripture. Father, thank you for communicating it to us and We see the glory of Christ in the triumphal entry, how he's the one who was foretold. He's the chief cornerstone who was rejected. This is the day that the Lord has made. We rejoice in it. You designed the day of salvation, the day of redemption. Your glory, Jesus, that you would demonstrate your love towards us upon the cross, die for our sins, and rise again to call us out of selfishness, to call us out of sin, to where we would follow you. And we express that we don't follow you the way that we would desire, but we want to grow. We want to grow in our relationship with you. We want to see you. And may this bring just great clarity in our life today. We want to follow you. We want to be right where you're leading us. So we thank you and we praise you. We, we ask for the help of of the Holy Spirit in following you, in being obedient to you. May you be magnified in our perspective and understanding.